Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm Dukran Gurdzilika. Totally not a rip-off of Duncan Nickel. Non-copyright infringement. It's all okay. It's all okay. <laughs> welcome, Duncan. Welcome to a little bonus episode we're doing on The Eye of Argon. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, people expecting our normal programming, we're talking about a Court of Thorn and Roses. Please bear with us, that will be with you in... Two weeks' time? Two weeks' time? Yes, yeah, so, sorry, Geordie. I am, uh, I'm taking a little holiday next week, so please bear with us and enjoy this little, uh, this little treat to carry you through. Exactly. This little bit, little bit of filler. This little bit of... Uh, this little taste. This little appetizer for the meal to come. I'm sure that when we get to a quarter of Thorns and Roses, we'll find plenty of um, crossed ground with... Um, with the Eye of Argon, it has st- strong, handsome men in it. That that's that's pretty close. I don't even know actually where to take this. It is a small treat. That is something I can expand on. This is a very short story. That is something we can definitively say about the Eye of Argon. Twenty-eight pages, I think, and seven and a half chapters. Yes, maybe we can why round it, it to eight if you include the uh, the lost ending. Why is it seven and a half? Wait, so the chapter three, which is a paragraph long, and a chapter three and a half, which is like the length of a normal chapter. What what does that mean? I don't know. It's an inspired choice I've uh, I've never really come across before. No. There's a lot of inspired choices in this book, which I've never really um, come across it's before. True. It's quite avant-garde in that way. <laughs> and it has a very creative use of the word avant-garde. It has that a creative use genuinely... of many words. But. Yes, that is one of my favourite lines in this book, is him using avant-garde, was having zero idea what it means. It's phenomenal. Oh. So, Duncan, what is the Eye of Argon? The Eye of Argon is a very short, mm. heroic fantasy story um, yeah. that is clearly heavily inspired by Conan, but not Conan, non-copyright infringing Conan. And... It was, I just, so the, the publication history of this book is kind of fascinating and a little it bit is. disturbing. It genuinely is. So I have Argon and, just know, not a grand scholar, but this is the general vibe the internet has uh, given to me. The I of Argon mm-hmm. was published in 1970 in what I believe, it wasn't even a fan magazine, it was a respected science fiction, I say respected, uh, an official science fiction magazine which published science fiction short stories this is fantasy this is before people worked out they were different genres it happens mm. and this uh, story was put forward by Jim Tice 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 I apologize Jim Tice who was only 16 I know for a fact that you've heard this I, I know for a fact you've heard this said out loud Duncan there's no excuse here I will excuse all the other mispronunciation of this episode but come on you saw a YouTube video about this I just saw a YouTube video about this. You know what? I'm just going to call out to that. So, just before, so I we, Georgie put this forward, and I'd heard about this mm. book in the zeitgeist of the internet as the worst ha- fantasy story ever written. Do you know how it? you found out about it initially? Do you know what? That's a very good question. And I can only imagine that I learned about it kind of through a lot of. So, I'm a big fan of Conan the Barbarian. I go on a mm. lot of said forums. Um, this was a story that always circulated. Often it was brought up in conversation uh, when we talked about sort of very bad Conan Pachés um, or Pachis 
works. A lot of these kind of concepts of like, well, this one's, you know, Steve Perry, oh, he wrote a terrible Conan pastiche. You know, it's just complete with no originality there. It was absolutely awful. And often someone would come along and in the comments go, yeah, but is it as bad as I of Argon? And I think that's sort of the context. It's always a punchline of if something was bad, yeah, but is it this bad? I suppose it's a very similar way to how every, kind of the mean way it's like, it's a better love story than Twilight. It's the bad example that everyone can throw out there, regardless of legitimacy, to kind of say, mm, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Unlike Twilight, there's a bit more kind of behind the scenes, and I'm going to be very um, kind of open and honest here. A lot of what I'm about to say, I've essentially taken from one source, um, and what I essentially did is I checked a few of yeah, I checked on the internet, could find nothing to contradict them. So I'm generally going to trust in this um, YouTuber and what they said. I watched other stuff, the name's Dominic Noble. They put out a video talking about the Eye of Argon and the story behind it. And if you're interested in it, do go and see their video. They go into a lot more detail than I'm going to discuss here about how this literally worked, create, became its own thing away from the author and the impact that had on the author. So back to Jim Tice, 16 years of age, first published story in a science fiction magazine in 1970 and unlike every other story probably published in that magazine this one wasn't forgotten by time several years later uh, another publisher came along saw it thought it was hilariously bad instead of boringly bad or disgustingly bad or just disinterestingly bad and republished it uh, as a standalone without properly accrediting the original author that's key point the original author did not get a penny from a lot of the recirculations of this text and a far somewhere still to this day does not which is really kind of upsetting i say he does sadly uh, jim tice passed away in 2002 And as it would kind of recirculate throughout the 70s and 80s, it kind of took on a life of its own. It went to conventions, it went through literary circles as this hilariously bad piece. You know, there was, from what, you know, what I've read online, people go to conventions, it was, can you read this out without laughing? How far can you get? Or can you read the original text without autocorrecting yourself for the misspellings and the improper use of words and the bad grammar? These sort of challenges, and it just got a built and built its own kind of zeitgeist, and it's been well called that it's had a very negative effect on the original author, who was kind of continuously ridiculed for this work, and really struggled to kind of move on from it. And he said in an interview, "You know, it's why I never wrote again." Yeah, you know, he had such kind of a, a shame and discomfort that people kept bringing this up. Bear in mind, this was something he published when he was sixteen years old. It wasn't going to be great. I don't think he ever reclaimed really it to be great. This isn't someone putting out there his hubris, his magnum opus. This is a 16-year-old person putting out their first attempt at literature. It was effectively fan fiction to heroic fantasy of the time. I'm, you know, this is a Conan the Barbarian story in structure, ideals, themes. We'll call them themes, motifs even. I'm just throwing words out there now like Jim T did. Um, sorry. But it just kind of kept going and it had a very negative effect on him. And to be quite honest, 
it's very important when we now approach this text that we kind of recognize it for what it was which is you know a young man's first attempt at writing and that the you know the bad quality in the work isn't reflective of the author it's make sure that when we critique it we're not critiquing the author themselves we're just kind of critiquing well what's the story how is it told and where did it go amiss in places now i gotta say i do gotta jump in and i've and it has to be said yeah jim ties was 16 and a lot of the mistakes in the book do make sense when you're 16 years old but i've got to be completely honest here i started writing when i was 15 and i reread what i wrote when i was 15 and it's a lot better than this <laughs> it's still bad even in context though right um i'm going to say it's still probably better than what i was writing for but one reason and that which is that you didn't write i did but i never wrote more than a page and a half I have never managed to get like I literally get paragraphs into a story and go ah feck it, not for me this one. So, I mean you're not wrong there. I've met people who consider themselves writers and like actually act you know talk about it like it's a foundational part of their identity, but they fundamentally don't do not write. You know like they get as you say like if a chapter in and a chapter would be impressive. They consider themselves writers because they like writing, but they just can't bring themselves to actually do it. I, yeah, no, I'm I'm very much in that context. Like, I think it's the difference is the fact that I do enjoy storytelling, and mm-hmm. I do find often that when I sit down to, you know, work up the old wordplay, the bit of the practice those prose, I do look at what I do and go, "Oh, Duncan, you're not actually completely awful." But I can't. High praise. I can't sustain. Maybe I should go into poetry and make it shorter. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, exactly. So that's one credit I will give that this is this is a complete story. There is a beginning. There is an end. Not sure quite what happened in the middle, but it's there. But you, you and actually another. Very famous young author. How about the um, chap who wrote Aragorn? Aragorn. Exactly. Christopher Poloni started at 15. I think he finished it at 16. Okay. I'm going to say something out there, Geordie. Yeah. Aragorn is is a better book than I of Argon. You, you know what? I'm not going to disagree with you. I think Aragorn is a pretty good book. And the fact that it was written by someone so young, I think only adds to its quality because it's pretty impressive. And that it's worthy of praise. I definitely think the, the age of the author should be factored in. But honestly, sometimes there is only so... You can only go so far. Like, you've been right to call this fan fiction because, And I think it should be held to the same standard of fan fiction. You're allowed to make fun of bad fan fiction, you know? There's no crime in that. It's great that people have so much enthusiasm about a story that they want to keep continuing it. But sometimes it just doesn't fly, you know? And mind you, most of the bad quality I see in fanfiction, and I personally think that 95% of fanfiction is bad, and you gotta trundle through to find the good stuff. But I really think that most of the time, it fails because it fails to capture the voice 
of the original series. You know, you, you, you experience the characters and you're like, this bears no resemblance to the characters that I'm familiar with. Gotta say this for Jim Tice. This is, if you were a fan of Conan, you can see that he has captured the themes and the tone and even the voice of Conan pretty exactly. This, uh, this is something that I messaged you earlier on in the week, Geordie, and I said, yeah, I think I've read worse Conan fan fiction than Eye of Argon. And you know mm. what? Something about the bush. I meant it. I actually need to come out and say that Eye of Argon is not the worst I've ever read. It has such a reputation, but I mean, oh, I need to make it clear: use of English language possibly the worst, grammar the worst, spelling the worst, sure. overall plot and structure the worst. But do you know what? It's not the worst. It it scores highly in one category, which is so important to the pulp heroic fantasy sword mm-hmm. and sorcery genre. What's that? It's entertaining. It is entertaining. That's the thing. We've talked about it being bad, but we have not been talked about the fact that it is so bad that it is very funny. This it's and that's very what very funny. It's and when I was getting that kind of the, the, talking about the backstory, like, you know, why was this picked up out of all those short stories that was probably written in that magazine? Because mm. this wasn't boringly bad. This wasn't forgettably bad. This was hilariously bad. This is entertainingly bad. And do you know what? If someone set out to do this intentionally, I think I would actually regard it as quite impressive. Yeah. For for example, the classic one people talk about in terms of bad factions, they talk about My Immortal. Um, But I am of the opinion, along with a lot of other people, that My Immortal is satire. Like, I don't think it is real. I think it is very deliberately, um, very deliberately set up to um, to be the epitome of so bad it's good fan fictions. This is not. We have historical proof. We know that this is legit. Does it matter? It does matter in one regard, because the thing about My Immortal is that you can feel completely guilt-free ripping on it because it isn't a labour of love. It is someone creating something you're supposed to be mad about. Um, And this does affect my... Because I want to be more sympathetic about it. For example, after reading your thing about how this is not the worst Conan pastiche... I've ever read, I went to Archive of Our Own, the largest fan fiction site in the world, and I looked up Conan of a Barbarian by Robert E. Howard. One, very surprised there are only 27 fan fictions about Conan, probably numbering less than 40 chapters in total if you add them all together. And I read basically all of them. Um, and none of them were as bad as this. Uh, I was really hoping I would find something that would make me feel, I could say, hey, Jim Tice, you're not the bottom of the barrel. But I did not find that. Even the one about Conan fighting Xenomorphs, and the one that was straight up, straight up Red Sonja Conan erotica. Yeah, it's, um, it wasn't that, it was pretty, it wasn't as bad as all that. No, maybe I need to be a bit more specific then and actually call out what I'm thinking of. I'm yes. thinking of um, two books in mind that came to my mind about this. One was uh, Conan the Defiant right. by Steve Perry. And the other one is a short story. I think it was called Conan and the People of the Mount... No. Conan the... It, it's, it's one of the short stories in sort of Conan the Swordsman, okay? Mm. And why do I take these two? Because... The book by Steve Perry, just not Conan. 
It's sure. not. It's 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 D and D. If anything, it's Forgotten Realms. Mm. It just didn't have the right sword and sorcery vibe to it. You know, the the setting, the the characters. It just didn't feel sword and sorcery or sword and standard. It just wasn't didn't have that little bit of grit it needed. And the one from Conan the Swordsman, um, it's because I can't remember its name. Sure. Because it was forgettable. And I sure. had to look to myself like, I'm not going to forget the Eye of Argon. I looked up a list of all the Conan short stories and I literally mm. went until I found one I couldn't remember. Then I read the plot synopsis and I still can't remember. Then I had mm-hmm. to get my copy off the shelf and go, oh, vaguely, I know I did read this. Mm-hmm. I'm not. That's not going to happen with Eye of Argon. No, you're never going to forget this. You've talked about the use of English language in it, and I think the thing that really stands out is it, it. I think it has two wonderful qualities to it. One, that Jim obviously used a th- a th- a th- what did he use? I never, I've never struggled with that word before. Is that Jim obviously used a thesaurus? You know, he really wanted to jazz up his writing. He wasn't confident enough in his. Simple prose, which you should have gone with, buddy. I know you were revoking Robert E. Howard, but it's better to use uh, simple Anglo-Saxon words than it is to try and do $10 words, you know? Like, for example, one of my favorite lines in this whole book. Her face was redly inflamed from the salty flow of tears spouting from her glassy, dilated eyeballs. (laughs) It's It's brilliant. Okay, so that is that was one of mine. I when I started reading this, I was reading on my phone, and every time I found a really good line, I would do just a quick screen sh- screenshot, you know, just so I've, mm-hmm. I've got a reference to it. And I thought I might share them, you know, when we get here, and then you know I talk through like my top like four or whatever. I currently have um, over twenty eight <laughs> screenshots. Where I just sure, kept going. Sure, sure, Yep, that one needs to go. Really early on. Like that one, because it's so simple. It's so close. Just use eye, eyes. I would have let that happen. Eyes would have been. It's okay. Yeah, the best. The best bit is that tears do not come from your eyeballs. They do not come spouting out of your iris. <laughs> spouting is a good word, you know. That's that's intense, like with force. It implies like that cartoon level of tears. You know, when exactly. they're like crying and like the art comes out. Mm-hmm. The other quality to it, aside from the thesaurus, is. Just not understanding what somebody's word means. And there is one word in particular, which is fantastic because he doesn't know what it means. He's read it and thinks it's just an insult, but he doesn't know what the insult means. But my my favorite, and I'll get back to that later because it's so funny, but the best one is definitely... Startled by the barbarian's stunning appearance, the chronic fit of their fellow, and the fear that Grignir might be the avant-garde of a conquering force dedicated to destroying their deranged cult, the Saemon momentarily lost their composure. Do they mean vanguard? The vanguard. He he clearly, like, he mixed up the word vanguard and avant-garde, which is fantastic. Avant-garde, I laughed. I had a good chuckle about avant-garde. This story is so rich of those examples. I think that's it. That's what makes it humorous. A lot of the comedy is yeah. coming from that mishaps in wordplay, which is fantastic. <laughs> it is. It really is. Like, the enthusiasm is so obvious, rolling off the page. Duncan, do you have some quotes you'd like to throw out there? 
absolutely. This one is really early on, but it just mm-hmm. spoke to what was where we were going. Okay, so um, his blade bit deeply into the soldier's neck, lopping off mm. the confused head of his senseless tormentor with a nauseating thud. The severed oval toppled to the floor. I've noticed that, and I can't speak to this myself, but I've heard that the author behind Robert Jordan, the author behind Wheel of Time often referred to people's eyes as like glowing orbs you know i've never read those books myself i can't comment i've heard this commentary made and he does that here as well like i know there's actual tie-in between him refusing to say the word i and apparently robert jordan doing the same can you can you report on that i (laughs) i can tell you that yes robert jordan does refer to things as glowing orbs at points when i personally read it it never jumped out to me to hmm. an annoying extent, like some of his other quirks. I see. But that does happen. Another quirk, which I think he and Robert Jordan uh, share, is that they, they both like to describe uh, the size of female characters' breasts. That one also stands out. The main one that stands out for me at that section was uh, the word female. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he loves that word. And I dislike the word female. Like, I it, I have encountered far too many creepy incels online. The word female has been ruined. So anytime I see it used, I'm like, uh, 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 don't call them that. That's weird. I should say specifically as a noun, not an adjective. Adjectives are fine. And I think it's because, I don't know if it's actually, no, it is because he's overusing it. That's, that's a, a doubt. Uh, and you're just like, just mix it up. Like, you can drop a female into your story it's not a female character sorry you can also use the word female into your story because you're feeling like oh, i'm saying i'm saying woman or lady or something a little bit too much i, I just need something different but we say these are like these are doing, he's doing badly but there's some mm. bits where i genuinely think it's just quite entertaining writing with the over colorful purple prose that's, mm. that's what we call it when we talk about like robert e howard he had purple prose over description mm. um often related to the fact that they were paid sort of by the word so get those adjectives in guys and if that is the style of writing that uh Jinthos was trying to like emulate he definitely was on the right direction mm. um take this little passage this is for talking about a um a regal uh prince you know who's i noted this as sat well. in his decadence and his sagging flabs rolled like a tub of upset jelly when compressed as he sucked in his gut in an attempt to conceal his softness. I don't know. I think that was actually pretty decent. I agree. Like, I, I noted that as well. I read that through and I was like, that is not bad. Like, that is actually, it tells you a lot about the character. It paints a very vivid picture. Uh, I agree. That is actually, like, legitimately quite a good line. I noted one which I was like, this is close. This could almost be a good line. To the right of a trap wound a short stairway through a recess in the ceiling. Now, the through a recess in the ceiling thing is, like, bad writing, but bad in, like, a, a normal way. So that's what makes this an, almost a good line. Uh, a concealed entrance leading to the mausoleum for which the catapult had obviously been rele- uh, erected as a silent, relentless guardian. That's like, hey, that sounds a lot like Robert E. Howard. He kind of really have captured his, like... His, his sense of drama and ancient excitement, you know? That whole section where he's explaining the, how the mechanism, how the trap was set up. Uh, this is a bit where Grignir is escaping from the palace dungeons mm. and he's working his way sort of deeper in uh, to get away. And he comes across this um, catapult trap. 
And I think we get a good explanation. I understood what was going on. And how the mechanism worked. And I like the fact that he sort of escapes through the trap. The trap springs. And, and then it's like, well, there's a trap room underneath that houses the mechanism. I'm going to sneak out through there. Oh, I did not realise that. I don't think that was clearly communicated at all. I thought he just okay. went down the stairway. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe he did. Maybe I'm the one, Ross. I got yeah. confused at this point because then I felt like, wait, he's gone down a say, trap on door. the whole, on the whole, I wasn't that confused about like the structure of the book. It was pretty clear to me like what direction people were going in. I do say at one point they introduced like a character called Sargon, and I'm like, what the fuck? Who's this? Why are you introducing him now? I think he's supposed to be a god or something. He is. He's the um. So Argon is like the evil demonic deity that the yeah. cultists are worshiping, and Sargon. I can't believe I'm explaining Eye of Argon more. Sargon <laughs> is the de- the the established deity of the kingdom mm. uh, that represents the prince. So. <laughs> I'm actually really giddy with joy that I just had to explain law for this. Um, what I really enjoyed about this as well is I actually liked the overall structure, like the story plot beats. To me, hit that kind of Conan element. We start yeah. on what apparently is a bit of a meaningless sword fight, but you know mm-hmm. what? Opening your pulpy adventure story with just a with a, an action scene that doesn't really tie into the rest of the plot—that's kind of okay yeah it, it is it, James it, it's, it's way too short a chapter and like it just it doesn't introduce grignir as a hero it just suddenly says he is there and you're like all right i need to know a lot more about him why is he on this journey where is he going stuff like that. like like basic storytelling principles are missed out but you're right he's identified you want a strong exciting start and he wrote a strong exciting start the fight scene itself is like obviously poorly written but again only in the same way the rest of the story is poorly written like it has bad bad use of language in terms of an actual like fight scene it could have been good if he knew his language better like he understands what makes it the back and forth of it exciting yeah it should be longer it should be more in depth but sure he's not he he knows what he's doing there (laughs) i'll tell you something that jim tice does not understand um and that is where babies come from. Oh so I didn't actually take any quotes from this part because I I, was, I didn't think I was gonna like have a, you know need to take that long a list. But my what a really excellent embarrassing part of this is very early, very early in the I almost said fic, very early in the novella. Um, Grignir runs into this tavern wench. Um, who he, like, immediately puts the moves on. And in true Robert E. Howard fashion, there's lots of descriptions about how attracted she is to his big muscles. And then, like, they start making out, and he pushes her away and says, you make love good, wench. Which is brilliant, because he doesn't know what that word means. He doesn't know what it means. <laughs> I I almost wanted... So there was a bit of me in that scene... Well, I was really going to give the benefit of the doubt and go, is he implying that Grugnir doesn't know what this word needs? <laughs> simple use of the civilized language. That's brilliant. That's, I had no concern that view. Maybe, maybe he, you're right, Duncan. Here's my favorite part. My favorite part of the whole fic. And my favorite word, which Jim Tice does not understand. And that is the word slut. He doesn't know that slut means like loose woman. He thinks it's just an insult, like, that you can throw at anyone. And technically it is an insult you can throw at anyone. But 
Grignir is called a slut three times by guards for being a troublemaker. Like, get the slut. It's amazing. It's, yes, it's not necessarily that it's the gender issue, because I think it can be used in both for any gender. You, know, you certainly could, but it is but traditionally it... one, and especially in, like, a historical fantasy novel like this, it's, it's like, the reason he uses that, Conan uses that word a lot. Yes, but I think the problem is it's meant to be used for, oh, God, I have to use the phrase, sexual promiscuity. And not in the context of a troublesome prisoner. Mm. For me, it's not necessarily the, the gender thing, although you are it's mostly used towards um, women. Yeah, I can still see it's it being used as a non-gender term, but it is you know, referred to normally in a sort of sexual uh, connotations context, not in the context mm. of being righteous or... Oh my god, why can't I say it? What's I'm bit I'm infected now, I can't use the right words. What's it? A disturber of the peace. Thank you. A disturber of the peace. To being difficult in prison. It's it's that context that makes it wrong. You could use this to mm-hmm. refer to Grignir in a clever way, I'm sure. Let's jump back in. you here's I mean this is connected because it's also a scene involving kissing. This is an amazing line, okay? When he and his damsel, um Carthena, daughter of Minkados, Duke of Barwego, whose lands border the northernmost fringes of Gorzom. Well done, Jim Tice. You have mastered the art of saying lots of proper nouns. You are now a true fantasy author. But that's not my favourite line. My favourite line is, Art thou pleased that we have chance to meet once again? Grignir merely voiced unside grunt, returning the damsel's embrace while he smothered her trim, delicate lips between the coursing protrusions of his reeking maw. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the reeking maw is amazing. That's the thesaurus. That is the thesaurus. Why reeking, though? No? You gotta um, know what that means, right? There's a bit earlier when she's um, being kissed by the shaman, and he's meant to have this horrible, disgusting, like, teeth-rotting mouth. Exactly. And now that just gets crooked. She literally vomits. Yeah. <sighs> oh, boy, 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 boy. Right. I want to talk about now a little bit of the, the structure of the story and how I actually think, in sort of a plot point, this does actually get that sword and sorcery down quite well. That's right. And that's what I said earlier is, is exactly my point. The fact is he does capture the style and structure of the genre he's trying to emulate, which is more than you can say for most fan fiction that's written about a series, where the characters have no resemblance to the actual characters within the book. So you've got instances like the opening fight. Now, this to me instantly threw me to mind of uh, Pacheta came out a little bit later. I think it was in the 80s. Written, or Conan mm. Pache, Conan the, Valer- the Valorous, um, by... Not Robert Jordan, um, John Roberts. There we go. Okay. John Roberts. And it has a, an interesting similar opening, except it does the small things that you would correct it. We introduce Conan on his horse, looking out at the horizon. He's galloping along the road. Mm-hmm. He sees the figures exactly. approach. He explains to us where he's come from, why he's fleeing, why the guards are after him, and where he's going. And then we get our opening sword fight with clever tactics. There you go. That, that's Perfect. exactly the opening you want. You've, you've nailed it. We get the... We go to a tavern. Fine. Meets a woman. Okay. 
then he gets in trouble with the guards sort of half unintentionally definitely see that happening it's like in queen of the yeah. black coast where conan is simply defending a friend's honor and punches mm-hmm. someone they go that's the guard you can't punch the guard and he's like he was being insulting great mm. the when he gets taken to the prince and it we do the classic he's sick on society it, and exactly insults a civilized man you don't know the true nature of the world queen of the black coast again from robert e howard where he gets taken to the magistrate and the magistrate's like, I understand you, barbarian honour, but you have to turn your friends in. And the barbarian's like, why would I do that? He's like, because you have your rogue duty to society. House. Oh yeah, and rogues in the house. Very similar uh, scene plays mm-hmm. out. Talking of rogues in the house, how does this Conan break out of prison in rogues in the house? Um, well, it also involves a bone, but in a slightly different context. That's genuinely one of my favourite moments in Conan, which is the fact that this guy, um, he's, he's, a, he's a noble. What's his name? Is his name Ronaldo? Yes, Ronaldo. I pronounce it yeah. Ronaldo, but go ahead. Fair enough, Ronaldo. Um, so Ronaldo says, "All right, I need Conan to serve me." So he sends his guard along to release Conan, and he's previously given Conan like just like a big bit of meat on a on a bone, which he's just om nom 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 nibbling on, very content, very happy. The guard goes along. He insults Conan, and. He's supposed to open the door for Conan, but Conan takes the bone out of being insulted and just cracks him on the head and then takes the keys and breaks out. So even though he was going to be legally extradited and released from prison, he still breaks out, not realizing that he's been free. <laughs> and there is a bone in Grignir's escape. Now, Dorothy, yes. I've heard complaints this online is... that people said, uh-huh. and then Grignir fights a giant rat for some reason. Not for some reason, it has a point. Because mm-hmm. it's how he gets a weapon. Exactly. I mean, he for sure didn't need it. He's definitely more deadly with his hands than with a rat bone. But yes, he fights a rat. And honestly, again, the descriptions on there, like scratching up his chest and stuff, that felt very authentic. Like he clearly, he clearly knew what he was emulating there. He kills it rips it open and removes its hip bone and sharpens it into a shiv. I can't comment uh, on, I don't know nearly enough about rat anatomy to know if that makes any sense at all. It depends how big you mean by giant, because there are giant rats in New York that are about the size of, like, I don't know, a, a chihuahua. Um, that I would consider that giant. If we're talking, like, rodents of unusual size from a princess bride with, like, the size of, I don't know, a corgi... I, I guess I guess you could use a corgi's hip bone to, like, make it sharp and then stab a guy in the neck with it. Again, not sure why he didn't just, like, right hook the guard and then take his axe and then kill the other guy with the guard because I, I don't think he needed, I don't think he needed a rat bone. But hey-ho, sure thing. Sure thing. And that bit, being attacked by a larger-than-life monster in a dungeon. Yeah. Again, what we have? Scarlet Citadel. Exactly that story. Or even um, Hour of the Dragon. Black Colossus. Now the Dragon. Black Colossus? Why was in Black Colossus? Big snake. It's not a prison cell. Still a big snake. All right. Fair enough. Black Colossus. Tower of the Elephant. Tower of the Elephant. Giant spider. Giant spider. Big, big animal. And big animal. Those ones they're guarding in Hour of the Dragon. It's a giant ape. He just fights another giant ape in jail. Another one. Wow. In jail. Another one. I've in never jail. read Hour of the Dragon. It's the only um, Robert E. Howard story I haven't read. I read the comic book adaptation of it and I was like, whatever, man. I've read so much of this already. I think I'm just going to let it be. <laughs> I've already read fucking the first draft of it, Scarlet Citadel. 
it does go further. Um, which version, Alvin, which comic adaptation did you read? Uh, Dark Horse. Dark Horse. That's, yeah, good. Good. Good call. Cool. I you. think it's a very good adaption. Makes even small improvements. Oh. I know. Yeah. That's that underground vampire chick was so hard. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um... <laughs> There's no underground vampire shit. But then I like it because we get the escape from the prison and just like Scarlet Citadel, we go into the, like, the darker dungeons. We find that this lost cult, which, by the way, two things I liked here. Um, I like the fact that we didn't actually know why he was struggling in the rat's guts immediately. It's only when he's That's fighting the guards. We get the reveal. <gasps> it's exactly. a weapon. Well done. <laughs> I can't believe how much we're singing this this story's praises because it is truly abysmal. But honestly, I'm really enjoying talking about it and the ways in which it succeeds in its goals. Like, I, I discovered this not through, like, mentions online. I'd never heard of this book, but I listened to a podcast called 375 Pages Will Never Get Back, which is a podcast which is about reading bad novels. The first book they read, the 375 pages they'll never get back, they're referring to is Ready Player One, which they're not fond of. And I think the next book they read after that was Armada, the other book by um whoever wrote Ready Player One. I forget his name. Duncan? No, don't look to me, mate. Okay, All right, whatever. Yeah, I read it. Anyway, and then after that, I think they read Eye of Argon. And I what I found really interesting about it was how much they caught on the word Fuse, his mighty steel-hardened Fuse. And I went, oh, you don't realize that this is a Conan story. And so much of the problems they had with the book were like, actually, no, this guy has, has he, he knows what he's writing and he has succeeded in writing some of what he's trying to do. Do you know what? I was surprised of all the words that get thrown in here. Mm. We don't get my one of my favorite Robert E. Howard words. Mm. Dogs? Not dogs. He loves no. small people dogs. Conan, he doesn't shout, doesn't yell, doesn't cry out. What does he do? He bellows. He ejaculates. Oh, God. (laughs) Down, you dogs. Conan ejaculates. (laughs) Robert E. Howard, that is a quote. Look it up. Okay, that, you know what? That's true. That line is not in here. People would be making fun of it if it was. But that's true. Like, Rob, even uh, Conan, Conan Doyle was... I was using the word ejaculated as my my year 10 class was delighted in discovering. So we get the structure. So we have our prison break and then we get our fleeing through the dungeons and then we uncover the cult. Now, this cult, this evil cult. Now, it gets a bit of set up. I do like the fact that we cut to the cult before Grignir comes upon them, which is a level of competency I wasn't expecting. It's a lot like a Robert E. Howard story. He loves to do that, introduce a new character in order to set the scene, and then you have Conan run into that character. Your thoughts? I mean, aside from the fact it's not very well written, sure, it's a lot like yes. uh, Iron Shadows in the Moonlight. You open up with Olivia, and then Conan meets Olivia, and she can clue him in on what's going on. Seen throughout um, a lot of the kind of short stories, particularly by La Pride de Camp, I believe, if you often hear stories for Star, and it's a game of, when will Conan walk into the room? Mm. Um, also, every La Pride de Camp, we talk about, like, adjectives. That man could... Um, him and Lynn Carter, they often wrote together, it's quite hard to know exactly which one. Whatever. Mm. Volcanic blue eyes. Yes. That was their own description. <laughs> His eyes were volcanic blue. I'm like, guys, can can they not be any other way of blue? Was that not a Robert E. Howard phrase? I'm sure he'd used that, didn't he? 
He, well, if he used it, he did not use it like those gentlemen used it. Later I mean, on I, in the fascist work. It purely you know. stands out to me because I've always thought it was an amazing description. Like, volcanic blue. Like, so much is expressed by that. Like, about his character and about his appearance. But if they do overuse it, I would understand why they would get annoying. And there's an overuse of a of a individual description. is something that uh, this book is not guilty of. And then, yeah, we get to the, the cults. We see their, is it a jade figure? Yes, a giant jade statue with a ruby eye. A red emerald. (laughs) A red emerald? Look it up. Oh my god. Bravo. Bravo, Did your brain auto that just going, It did. I failed the challenge. I didn't, I (laughs) autocorrected. Now, I would just like to say... This is actually uh, a quite a renowned point of um, issue with the book is the use of the face red emerald. Wikipedia tells me they do exist. So I I was just maybe... about to say because like words like like ruby and sapphire are essentially the same stone, right? It's just impurities cause one to turn blue and one to turn red, but fundamentally they have the same structure, right? Oh, uh, no, I've now read another thing saying there is no such thing as a red emerald. Oh, um, so. Maybe is no. that just because emerald, by description, has to be green? Like, are they just the same structure, but with different colouring? As far as I'm going to go... Duncan, what is the chemical structure of an emerald? You're a scientist, you should know this. I'm an engineer, do not ever get us confused. Otherwise your car is not going to work in the morning. Mm. You're, you can't fix a car. <laughs> <laughs> no, terrible thing that people constantly confuse a mechanical engineer for a mechanic. Uh, you you do not want a mechanical engineer working in your car, mate. It would yeah. not end well. Have you ever, like, replaced a tyre, Duncan? I once watched the man replace my tyre. All right, cool. I once helped my dad replace a tyre. Our generation is so, is so much trouble. I was 12. <laughs> the tyres <laughs> have been fine since then. And I can't drive. Anyway, so... Can I answer your question? What is the chemical structure of an emerald? So the mineral bell, beryl, oh my God. which... Um, when it's coloured green, is an emerald. Otherwise, when it's coloured red, I believe it is a ruby. So and yeah, is, by is, definition, by definition, yeah. it has to be green. No, you are right. Technically uh, speaking, I will say that Jim Tice is not wrong. It is a red emerald, otherwise known as a ruby. Fair enough. I think I think I will let that slide. Red emerald, amazing, amazing. Ah, yeah. So he runs into this cult. Um, he finds some abusing a, a poor woman from before. You know, like, we, it's it's a staple of a genre. You have to mistreat your female characters. He rushes in. He, he kills most of them. But one guy literally just has an epileptic seizure upon seeing Greg Near. Sorry, sorry, Geordie. Actually, no. So we need to recall that because that was factually wrong. And people, I can't bear that. No, a oh. ruby is actually the same as a sapphire, which is actually a slightly different thing to an emerald. Okay, so, that's what, Yeah, okay, cool. Fair enough, so, so it's not a ruby, and technically, although a red emerald does not exist in our world, the rock pearl could be coloured red in a fantasy setting. Alright, thank you, Duncan. I appreciate the accuracy. I was furiously googling there, being like, I can't get this wrong. You know, the, something's not adding up here, so yeah, no, sure. my apologies. But yes, red emerald is not traditionally what we call it, but I, it doesn't bother me, I don't care. No. Whatever. Yeah, it's a red emerald. Yeah, whatever, cool. man. It's a fantasy world. Actually, technically speaking, it probably takes place in our ancient past, but whatever. Anyway, so he uh, he, he runs with his cultists, he c- kills them all, except one guy who has an epileptic seizure, and then that guy gets better, and he attacks Grignir, and then Grignir kills him. Hooray! Riveting action scene. They escape. 
he steals um, the Eye of Argon, which I don't know about you, Duncan. I felt like it changed size. I felt like initially it was like the size of like the lid of a bin, you know, a trash can lid. It felt huge. But then later it sounded really small. Am I just making that up? I can't speak with confidence on this matter. In my head, it was always like hand size, but I would point out that it is discovered later that the eye is a living, the, what's it called? The blob. Yeah, it's an amorphous monster thing. Maybe it changes size. It probably does change size then, but I've got to say, and this has actually been something I've never liked about Conan stories, is that fighting a monster is super easy. You swing your sword once and it dies. Even though that's kind of fair enough, monsters probably should die with one swing. But he takes he takes his lady out. They get outside. The eye of Argon transforms into this monster and it attacks him and he kills it in one swing. And that's the way a lot of Conan stories end, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, the giant spider, he effectively, he does a bit of jumping about and then he just throws a chest at it. And it squashes it. Yeah, but it, it might, squashes it. The absolute quintessential example for me is Black Colossus. Because Black Colossus, um, it, it eclipses. It's so much of the Conan aesthetic is about the climax of that book. Conan storming into a room. He sees the undead wizard who's transformed to reveal his true nature. He's got a naked woman tied down on a, um, on a platform about to sacrifice her. He summons a giant snake. So much of what you think about with Conan comes in that one scene. And Conan wins that fight by attacking the snake once, chopping off its head. It never attacks him. Like, he just kills it in one swing. And he throws his sword and he kills the, the, the evil lich in one swing. That's it. That's the end of the fight. I need to reread Black Colossus. Honestly, Doddy, I, I'm actually struggling to remember the snake. And that's because there's basically no fight for it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the climax of a book... To be fair, has been the climactic, really well-written battle. And this is clearly him being like, I have to end this in two pages because it has to fit inside a magazine. But still. You know what? I, I need to throw out there, just because we're talking about like the end of Conan stories. There's a Conan story by Robert Jordan. Um, I believe it's Conan the Defender. Mm-hmm. And it has the best villain death All right. that I can remember. Because what happens is Conan is unaware of the villain the entire novel. Okay. Like, they are working at opposite ends. Basically, the villain's trying to overtake a kingdom, and Conan just happens to be there. <laughs> like, doing his own sort of plot. And in the end, it's like the magic's going off, and there's a big crowd scene, and everyone's trying to run to get away. And Conan basically just kind of backswings his sword, and That's just amazing. so happens to take the sorcerer's head That's off. That's amazing. Like, unintentionally. Like, I don't think at any point he knew the bloke was even the villain. That's beautiful. He's just like, let's get out of here. Oh, and falls so over. That, rem- that makes me think the other day, I went to an escape room on a date and two of the puzzles, I was like, I'm going to guess how to solve this. And I was right both times. One of them, to be fair, was not a puzzle. It was an algebra problem. And at one point I just said, like, there were all these shapes to represent the different weights of, um, the different weights were described by numbers. And at one point I just went, let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just say circle is two. Based off of that, can we solve the problem? And circle was two, and we did solve the problem based on that guess. Mate, you've just got... I hope you played that. I hope you were like, and I am just that clever. Don't you worry. I... I my, my date was suitably impressed. She actually told me afterwards, she's like, I love the confidence you had that you were right when you were doing those puzzles. I was like, that's good, because... 
it, all of it was bluster. I had no idea. I actually need to go back now and actually uh, have a small critique of you, Geordie. Oh. Because you said that there was one swing to kill this, the blob. Um, but actually, I don't think that's is what happens, is it? Is it not? He has... No, he tries to hack at it, but he has to take the burnt out end of his torch. Oh, shit. And it's shit. actually the fire that kills the blob. Whoa, Jim Tice, I apologise. So, actually, your entire thesis there has fallen apart, and Jim Tice actually did something pretty quite clever. You know what? I concede, Jim Tice, you did it. You have bested me. I, 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 lay, I take off my hat to you. And, and that's the end of the story. They get outside. And they ride off in the sunset. And they leave. That's Classic, it. Classic, the slivering shadow, isn't it? They get out the 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 lost city, and then yep. they just walk off. Yeah, absolutely. At one point, they like turns out there's a, there's a, there's an oasis not far from here. Let's go, and they leave. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about the Dark Horse adaptation of the Slivering Shadow is that it has like really, really, really good art, and you meet this character, the Brayfunian. I don't remember her name, Natalia, maybe. I'm not going to lie, mate. I cannot remember every one off the top of my head. But yeah, they say Natalia. For yeah, I feel like that's right. Um, and then the media is followed in the Dark Horse by one of their original stories. And it's one of the worst because they just have this awful, awful art style. And Natalia's just taken away by these warrior women. And it reintroduces this, like, this desperado swordswoman from, like, the second story oh, arc well but... not the was it it's like the widow she's like the widow maker or yeah, something that's it. like that yeah exactly really trying hard it's like so it, basically they didn't have the so light to red sonia so mm. we got this character instead but very okay, very got... deviant art if you um if you actually read that it's great because in the last page of the slivering shadow adaption it's uh natalia's there we're gonna keep calling natalia probably completely wrong and the last like line is her going talking about the um, people that they left behind in the lost city. And she goes, in a way, I almost feel sorry for them. Mm. And then, like, if you turn the page in the omnibus, the next scene is her in a completely different art style being like, I hate them. We've been walking for miles. Like, it's a complete <laughs> character swap. The yeah. only thing I have to say is... No, you're completely actually... right. I remember how weird her character was because N- Natalia, you're like, she's not an amazing character in the original story. Like, she's... um. She's damsel in distress. End of exactly. She's very domestic and docile, and the whole point of her is that she's weak and helpless in comparison to um, uh, Thyra, maybe the the woman they meet in the city, and she needs to be looked after by Conan. But the depiction of her in the Dark Horse, every issue surrounding that, where they introduce her and when she leaves, she's a total nag. Like she's just always complaining she's always mean and foul-mouthed and stuff and it's like it's very strange that you i know you want to make a difference but why are you doing a different misogynistic stereotype as opposed to the, the first uh the first stereotype yes it was an interesting choice i think it definitely spoke to um it's like they adapted the robert e howard story out of context of the rest mm. of their comic book run and they even have a different artist for those issues, which lend it to that yes. kind of impression of this isn't this isn't flowing naturally. And exactly. I feel a fair bit bad about that because I actually I know you said you thought it was an inferior art style. I, the, that's the my personal world. subjective uh, subjective opinion. Completely understand that. I personally love it. It's actually one of my second favorite art styles for the Dark Horse after the original fifty issues by Gary Nord and oh, I should know his name. Boz, let me get his name. 
Okay, well, Duncan will just have to live with that. <laughs> no, no, stop, stop. Why am I even bothering on my phone? I literally own the copy. Going, yeah, sorry. By the artist Gary Nord and obviously the writer uh, Kurt Basiek. Apologies for pronunciation. Yeah, I think I feel I actually cringed a little bit of that one. <laughs> so, I think that brings us to the end of the discussion of the Eye of Argon. Shall we do one more quote for the road? I think so. I just just before we get there, I do just want to say there are actually, if you go on Kindle, um, several books, one either discussing the Eye of Argon or actually rewriting it. Mm. In fact, there is apparently a version on Kindle which is 168 pages, which is a rewrite of the same story. That's actually longer than it should be. What the fuck? And I also genuinely think if someone came along with like, Duncan, uh, they're going to do like a comic adaption of this, I'd be like, Yes. Yeah, because you'd just be removing the typos and the weird choice of language. Like in, it, like we say, this is just, in terms of structure, this is just a Conan story. I've got one more quote. Are you ready? Go on. Give it to us. The shaman's lips curled back farther, exposing a set of blackened, decaling molars. <laughs> That's brilliant. His teeth I mean... is just molars. No incisors. No, um... Or maybe it's saying he just never gets to the back. He just brushes the front. I see, yes. Or he never brushes and all of his teeth except the molars have fallen out. Again, equally works, I yep. think. You know what? Again, underestimated your Jim Tice. Well done. I think if we can take one thing away from it. And you know what? I think that in we've had our fun here. And we've actually been a lot nicer to Jim Tice, I think, than a lot of other people. I think we should basically never mention this again. I think that we should make a rule where, you know, we have one rule on this podcast, which is that we try to avoid uh, misogynistic interpretations of books like Twilight. We try and avoid that. Uh, Another rule is that we put out this podcast every two weeks. Uh, And another rule we have is we never mention the Eye of Argon in comparison to anything, except for the genre it is trying to emulate. How about that? I'm happy to go with that. Yeah, we will um, never say the phrase, it's better than Eye of Argon. The same way I would never use the phrase... It's a better love story than Twilight. The sky is above my head. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, you had a different thing there. So, Jordi, do you recommend the Eye of Argon? And, or, and if you do, who do you recommend it to? <laughs> I do recommend the Eye of Argon. I recommend it to all fans of Conan... And all fans of fantasy novels, you have to experience it. I couldn't agree more. I genuinely had a really fun time reading and discussing this book. Uh, It's 28 pages long, seven and a half chapters. It made me chuckle. It gave me, you know, I got excited when I sort of noticed points and comparisons to be made to other sword and sorcery that I really enjoyed. I definitely feel like those who are fans of Conan, Sword of Sorcery in general, Elric, Fafnir and the Grey Mouser will get more out of this and that the people who have gone mm. deep down the rabbit hole of Conan Pesci's works will definitely get a hell of a lot out of this. Um, and probably already read it. But yeah, as you write, to all family fans, mm. give this a read. It's not very long. It is freely and legally available online. There are physical copies you can get if that's your desire. Now, Duncan, it's going to be two weeks till we see each other again because you're going on your trip next week. <laughs> and you know what that means, Duncan? What? It means that you have delayed the podcast. <laughs> and that means 
your punishments are not over. The Eye of Argon was intended to punish you, and because Legend wasn't as bad as I feared it was going to be, it was quite a good book, your punishment wasn't that bad either. But the price must be paid, Duncan. I just want to point out the irony that you used the phrase gave you previously. one rule on this podcast, yes. and I think we're up to about five at the moment. Yes, well, this is an actual rule, not like guidelines. This is it baked into. We established this. We agreed to alter the, the structure of the podcast. We we shook hands on this digitally. Like, we didn't actually touch, touch skin to skin because we haven't seen each other in months. But I gave you a token, Duncan. That allowed you allowed you to force me to read any sequel that you desired, because I, in, in a mistake, delayed the release of an episode, and now you have done the same crime and must face the same punishment. You hereby have one token to to make me read one sequel, at your leisure, sir. Now, two questions. One, I think these tokens need names. I don't think we should just call them tokens. They need to have a specific designation. And two, do you think these things can veto another person's choice? Absolutely not. If I... I'm... Okay, so you think it is... I'm down... No, I'm down with that. I I hope you'd say that. Like, I think it's way more interesting if they are... um, If they're used in that way. There's a podcast I used to listen to called um, The Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek um, TNG podcast. And they had a system where... Once per season, they were allowed to skip an episode, but the other person could use their ability to skip one episode per season to veto the other. And they go through the entirety of TNG watching every episode because every single time the other person tried to stop the other from watching an episode, the other person would veto it. Oh, that's a cute way to do it. And I would be, I would be afraid of that happening here. Uh, I'm very excited to see what you use it on. My money is going to be either the next Scholomance or another Green Rider, but we'll wait and see. Uh, <laughs> join us in two weeks' time Those are both to discuss a uh, Court of Thorns and Roses and find out what cute name we come up with for our tokens. In the meantime, if you have any opinions on the Eye of Argon and want to reach out to us and tell us about them, you can do so at our Instagram, is this just fantasy podcast, or via Gmail, is this fantasy just podcast. This is just fantasypodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts. You were so good at those. What happened? Um, And yeah, can't wait to hear from you next time for A Quarter of Thorn and Raises. We look forward to seeing you then. So long, everybody. Bye bye. Goodbye. And now a postscript. After the episode wrapped, Duncan and Geordie each discussed a little bit of their various attempts in the past to write successfully and unsuccessfully. Oh, I was trying so. Okay, right. So I was. I don't write a lot, and I didn't get far into it. Uh, but I was trying to write a sword and sorcery character. The problem was, how do you make it different? Okay. And what happens is, I was like, okay, so it can't be the big hulking bronze barbarian. Out, not 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 going to consider. Okay, the opposite end, weedly pale man. Nope, out, Elric. <laughs> can't do that either. Um. So I I focus on a. It was going to be a warrior woman. Um, that's my sure. key point. Um, I, to be quite honest, was trying to have the idea of it being sort of a more live, stealthy individual. Um, but basically, the scene that I was writing, because I was just trying pick upon a scene that, and just kind of give it a bit of character and go into a bit of an action, was the idea that it's we're set in this sort of 
um, village side, not even village side, roadside pub, just on the other side of the mountain mm-hmm. pass that people travel through. It's a misty night, right? Some travellers were there, and the whole point of the story was we were going to have our heroine, we were going to have three sort of hired mercenaries that were meant to be tracking them down, and that in the middle of the night, a sort of banshee-inspired creature was going to mm. attack. Okay? And then there was going to be a sort of a civil way fight. That was the concept. And dude, I wasted so much time trying to give character and personality to the three like mercenary characters that had been hired to point down. I didn't do this whole hole where I was trying to uh, like, not what was it called when you give them like animal characteristics mm. so i would literally spend ages being like okay so i'm gonna have just use one i'm gonna describe them to be like, like that's the wolf one that's one that i'm gonna describe a bit more like mm-hmm. a pig one that i'm gonna describe like these sort of characteristics and uh, one that's gonna be more like hawk like blah 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 and i just spent fuck i just got in this circle of like that's too much that's too little that's not getting the point across until literally I threw the towel in on the whole idea without even introducing the creature, mm. without even really getting past the first like blows in mm. the fight because I couldn't decide how I was going to characterize the non-characters in an efficient and quick way. I love way. it. That's brilliant. <laughs> yes, that, and that is how most of my writing mm. goes. I'll hit upon something minor and over-describe mm. it when it's not important. I would say that my... My, I tend to have a struggle with writing, which is that uh, unless I build up a really, really solid idea for something, it's quite hard to actually give it flesh. I'm pretty good when it comes to once I find that mojo, I'm pretty good at finding that mojo, and then I can, and then I can just write, and then I can just write and write and write. It normally happens around 3 a.m., but um, recently, like, even with stories I really have, like, a solid idea about, I have been struggling a little bit. Like, last year I wrote... I, I know I told you this before, but I wrote a fan fiction, and for some reason I just had the fever like never before. Like a writing fever, not an actual fever. And I wrote in a span of about a little under three months, 118,000 words. Um, and they aren't bad words. Like I'm actually still very proud of a story, even if it's not something I would take to a publisher with like all the names change and stuff. Um, it's, it's I really enjoy it. And since then, like I think, I think I expended a lot of myself in that in that, in that endeavor because it's not been that easy to write since then. It certainly hasn't come back in the same way. However, this week I was thinking about. I told you before about a story which I sort of have given up on. I spent two years writing it, finished it, wasn't that happy with it, and then I said, you know what? There's no fixing this. I figured out the way to fix it. I figured out a way to fix it, and <laughs> there's a lot of changes, but every time... So a lot of my writing process comes with... I will talk out loud to myself, and there are a lot of times when I was having this out loud discussion with myself, coming up with ideas, but I went, oh, that's amazing, Jordy. You've done it. You've actually done it. Oh my god, you're a genius. Saying that out loud to myself, because I really just, like, put the puzzle pieces together like never before. That's... That's so good. I'm glad you kind of have that element there. Do you find when you're writing? Because for me, I never, I've never written anything longer than about three thousand mm. words. That's how short we're talking here. Like for me, I always get excited more when I can think of a fun way, a fun narrative way, like a bit of wordplay or something like that. Like when I can get a description that I go and like, mm. yes, everything I've managed to get in one sentence, this guy's personality mm. across. Yes. 
a star. That's the bits where I like want to punch the air. To be honest, because I've never written anything long form, I've never really cared about mm-hmm. plot. Because I read a lot of short stories, you know, sword and sorcery fiction. So that's the only type of fiction I've ever tried to write. So the plot is just like plot yeah. is one of Political the most important not, parts not interested. of story. To be honest, like character, dialogue, prose, voice. Um, all of that comes before plot, in my opinion. Plots can be derivative, um, but the other ones, it's much more important that they're fresh and interesting and fun. The the bottom of the pile is, of course, and I will say this until my dying day, is world building. That's the least important part of a story. That might come up I think next we, uh, time on this show. That it may, that it may. I, I don't want to say it's the least important, but... At least I think I give it more weight than you do. I think we found that out when we talked yeah, about the Gus's exactly. Go check out that book club session, everyone. Um, but because I look at Tolkien, I think how crucial like world building is that in like Middle the Earth. Exception to the rule because he because first and foremost he was world building. That's what he cared about the most. Like everything else, everything else came second to that, and so he's specifically going for something there. Everyone else, when you're not trying specifically just to make a world. Everything else comes first. I think uh, there was a great uh, quote from an interview from George R. R. Martin. He talks about, if Tolkien's an iceberg, I'm a block of ice sitting on a raft. Uh-huh. For me, when he started writing, it was all about creating the illusion of a complex world to Restoros, but none of it was actually there at the time. And I was like, you made a very good illusion, mate. Mm, mm. I've been really interested in how um, I fell down this rabbit hole years ago watching YouTube videos about... Song of Ice and Fire, and I was really interested in how so much of these fan communities have a very different relationship with the world uh, George R. R. Martin created, because they believe all the lies which characters tell about their world. Like, these characters talk about certain ghosts and creatures that dwell under the ocean, like that, and people are like, so, George R. R. Martin's world has Lovecraftian deep ones, you know, they, they're canon to the book, and like, that was told to you by an actual insane person, like someone with canonical brain damage. Why are you believing them? Do you know, that's always a nice element when you kind of go into like um, how, you know, the character bias and unreliable characters. I think George R. R. Martin has an even a great one where I think one of the characters, um, he got the eye colour change between books. Mm. So later on, I believe it was Renly who went from green to blue mm. or blue to green. And then later on, he has another character just be like, I always love Renly's eyes. They always seem to change depending on the light between blue and green. <laughs> that's funny. Just like, well done, mate. No, that's, that's very funny. No, I, I know for a fact I've heard that he has like people who he calls up to like say, hey, what's this character's hair color again? Like super fans. He knows he can trust to memorize that stuff for him. Fair enough. Because you know what? Is that the stuff that matters? That, it's not the stuff that matters. You're completely right. Uh, always blows my mind when we come to adaptations there was a lot of this when Wheel of Time was being adapted mm-hmm. where they were doing the casting calls or the announcements mm. um, and people go mad like they've got the wrong hair colour and I'm like that's not the character yeah. Yeah. that is the least important most easily changeable factor mm-hmm. don't worry yeah, like- even if it's part of their race and it's like a major part of like the society they're meant to come from mm-hmm. I'll tell you now it's still the least important because for long as they act the character, I remember, we will not care. I remember a casting director in Hollywood saying, stop 
writing characters as redheads. Stop it. Because we don't have that many. They're 2% of the population. There are these book these stories are full of redheads, and we don't have enough redheads to fill in fill them in. Stop it. <laughs> yes, they're in fact the Weasley family, it was actually the entire UK's uh, <laughs> redhead acting population. That's different. Really good That's different. Them. We have we have Celts. <laughs> we can we can we have a Celtic pool to rely on. Alright. Uh, <laughs> Alright, I've finished. That's 10 minutes of extra content. Slot that in when you like. Exactly. That's good. I'm, I might even just say that. And now a postscript. There we go. Cool.